Hey everybody, what's up? Sagi here. And before you listen to this episode, I just wanted to let you know that the Hacking UI podcast, while we still have a lot of downloads for our podcast, is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are not recording any more sessions for the specific podcast. So what you can do right now is, first of all, listen to this episode, and second, know that you can find David on thoughtleaders.io, that's his new business, or you can check out my new podcast, which is called The Creativepreneur Show. And you can just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. So those are the two domains that you would be able to find my show, my new blog, my new community. And I hope uh, to see you there. Also, be sure to follow David Tintner and Sagi Schreiber on Instagram. We're both on Instagram. I'm also on YouTube. So you can check out the YouTube channel if you want to check out YouTube. Enough with my talking. Oh, my God. So anyways, I hope you guys, though, connect with me and David on the different platforms after this episode. All right. Make sure to do so because we have so much new content for you. And enjoy, guys. Enjoy this episode. It still takes a certain amount of faith from the team to say we believe that readiness is a concept that is worth measuring and that's worth building product to address. Hello, hackers. Thanks a lot for joining us for another episode of the Hacking UI podcast, where we hack our way through product design, development, and creative entrepreneurship. I'm David Tintner. And I'm Sagi Schreiber. We are thrilled to launch the third season of the Hacking UI podcast. Our first season was called Scaling a Design Team. The second season was called Scaling a Side Project. And we've decided to call this season Scaling a Career. Yeah, so in this season, we have 10 amazing guests for you who are leaders and influencers from a variety of different backgrounds. We have design managers, development leaders, entrepreneurs, and product geniuses. You'll be listening to our interviews with Brad Frost, inventor of the Atomic Design System, Marie Jadus, VP Creative at Autodesk, Samuel Ulick, founder of UserOnboard.com, Noah Kagan, founder of AppSumo and creator of SumoMe, and more. And for this season, we're also thrilled to have two amazing sponsors with incredibly useful products, Envision and FreshBooks. Yeah, so I bet you all know Envision. If you don't, Envision is an amazing product design platform with a full-on suite for tools of ideation, design, prototyping, and collaborating with others on your designs. But today, I would like to talk to you about designbetter.co. The education team over at Envision created this magnificent source of quality learning material for product designers. They interviewed dozens of leading designers at companies like Google, Airbnb, Netflix, Facebook, Slack, and more to discover the design practices that will help you transform your organization and create better products. So don't forget to hit designbetter.co after you listen to this podcast. And also you can subscribe to their podcast. They have their own podcast very good podcast for designers. And also you can read one of the four free books they published and put together. And you can also check their one-of-a-kind workshops for designers. Okay, D, so you want to tell them about FreshBooks? FreshBooks is the perfect accounting software for freelance designers and developers or creative entrepreneurs with a small business. FreshBooks is built from the ground up to work for people like us, let's say non-accountants. They have some really powerful features like integration with Stripe, expense tracking, and a customer support team that actually picks up the phone and works with you to find the perfect solution. Actually, my favorite part about FreshBooks is the super smart notifications they send, which show you the highest priority task you can do right now in order to improve your business. Again, if you're an experienced accountant and you're looking for the all-powerful analytical monster of a tool, okay, this is not it. But if you're like us and you're just looking to get some understanding of your business and keep track of things without wasting hours of your time, then this is exactly what you need. If you want to see what it's all about, FreshBooks gives you a 30-day free trial and doesn't even require a credit card to log in. Okay, so on to our episode today. 
Our guest today is a super talented designer and design manager from San Francisco, who by chance founded the design systems team over at Airbnb. Before working at Airbnb, he was the co-founder of two startups, one which was acquired by Yahoo. Ladies and gents, it's our pleasure to present to you Kenan Cummings. Let's get hacking. everyone and welcome to another episode of the hacking UI podcast we are here today with Keenan Cummings Keenan how are you doing great thanks for having me guys yeah it's great having you and uh, I've been to your talk in the Facebook event a couple days ago and it's just a pleasure having you now here with us because your talk was super interesting and David and I like we're talking we have tons of stuff to dig into regarding design tools and how you see the design industry from where you're working at Working at Airbnb, I bet, is super challenging and so fun to also experience that, you know, also in a company that is in the Bay Area and, you know, with the top talents and also working on such an amazing product. So, all right. So I guess maybe we should start with a bit of intro about yourself and how you came to be a designer and try to make it short. <laughs> um, but, um, but also, how did you get into Airbnb and specifically doing design systems there? Yeah, so I'll tell the quick version of the story. I started my career as a designer in New York City, and I was working in a very traditional brand-type world, branding agencies, very analog work, a lot of print work, a lot of brand work, not a lot of interactive or digital work. I enjoyed the spirit of what I was doing. I enjoyed kind of the philosophy of design. At some point, I had a dream project come my way. I got to work on redesigning and rebranding the Chicago Cubs. Uh-huh. And for an analog kind of brand designer, it felt like the ultimate design project you can have. And I didn't enjoy it. And so I knew something was missing. I knew there was something more maybe meaty, something more significant, like deeper problems that I can dig into. And I started to look at a few different routes I can go. One was kind of the innovation route, which is firms like IDEO, typically working with clients to project a future through the lens of design that's maybe five years, sometimes 10 years out. So I was looking at that. The problem there is that a lot of that work never ends up getting built or made. It's a lot of kind of theory, and, but not a lot of practice. Then I was like, okay, maybe I need to learn really the concrete skills associated with interactive design. So I started looking at some of the best firms in New York at the time, Huge, uh, who now has a present all over the world. That kind of felt like going, in a way, going back to design school to focus on interaction design. And I respect what they do, particularly because they really solve big usability and user experience problems for companies like Target, where they're operating at a scale where they can't use kind of flashy, small scale, specialized web stuff that only a thousand people are going to see. There are millions of people are using their products. So that was kind of seemed like an easy transition from agency into product design. But then this third option emerged and I happened to meet my co-founder at the time. He wasn't my co-founder, but I met Jeremy Fisher. He had done a startup before. He had some connections to investors and he had something he wanted to work on. He was looking for a co-founder. So that was kind of a quick path into user experience design straight from branding agency with no real portfolio or experience in user experience or product design straight into kind of designer founder with a co-founder. Decided to do that. And two months later, we were in Techstars and building a product and kind of learned on the job. So it was a quick road into product design. 
So the company was called Wander, and we initially conceived a product that was based around kind of around travel, kind of around place blogging, but related specifically to places. So it was very expressive. It was very much like blogging on Tumblr, but everything was geotagged, and it was supposed to kind of collect. There's two interesting aspects to that. One, it really prompted someone to express themselves and their interests and their identities related to places specifically. But then what really the promise and what really became interesting about it potentially was that we could collect all that content and say, here's all the content people have written about this specific place, this venue, this restaurant, this cafe, or this city or this neighborhood, etc. We worked on that for a year and we got it into a private beta and we were pretty proud of it and it felt good. And then as startups do, we decided to pivot And that decision didn't come lightly, but it came with kind of an epiphany about our product and testing some other ideas. And we stumbled into something we called Days, which we ended up launching as our, that was our real, that was our marquee product. And Days was a visual diary app. And we did that for about a year and a half. And that one saw pretty good uptake. We had a lot of people using it, a lot of people signing up, but for a social product with no real business model a couple hundred thousand users is nothing in a world where you need to have 10 million users in a few months to really be anything investors are interested in. So we decided to maybe start talking to some companies and we ended up, there's a long story there, but I'll just say we ended up getting acquired by Yahoo. It was kind of a, a talent acquisition as Yahoo was doing a lot of those back then. And it was a good outcome, I think, for the work and the time and energy that the whole team had put in. And it ended up making it, you know, what one of, one of my investors called, a lot of investors call like a soft landing. We had invested a lot of our time and energy and focus for two and a half years into our startup. And after that, to be honest and open about it, I was in debt. My co-founder was in debt. We had used all the money we raised to pay our team and not ourselves, really. So it was a hard couple and a half years. And after that, it kind of got us back on solid ground and all those kind of things. But after about six months at Yahoo, I had had enough and kind of found my way to Airbnb. Awesome. And by the way, we have, I guess, a similar story in a way, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we also had a startup and we worked on it for like a year and a half, pivoted, like we got into Apple Labs and we flew out to Palo Alto, we pivoted, we came back to Israel and then later we were acquired by a company called SimilarWeb. And yeah, that was where we worked for like two and a half years before doing hacking, you know, full time. So, <laughs> so in Airbnb, can you explain to us basically where you started off and how do you get into everything you do? I know right now you're like at the position of like uh, managing the, the growth design there, mm-hmm. but uh, you did run the design tools, the design systems team, and you basically built it, right? Yeah. So the design systems team, as I kind of, I got invited out here to Tel Aviv to talk specifically about that process. And that was really the first time I had built a team. And it came out of the work that we did on, on developing the first iPad app for Airbnb. Again, we saw that as an exercise to develop and to push our design language specifically around product and user experience because we had a beautiful brand. We had rebranded about a year before that. So we felt like the brand had been elevated, but the user experience hadn't quite reached the level that the brand had. So trying to bring that same level of sophistication and thought and intention into the product experience and the design language itself, we started with iPad. And over time, we realized this needed to be a team. So it was a, re- it was a really fun process to be able to carve out the time and get together with a really strong product manager and engineer and kind of write a manifesto for what this team should be, what its mission is, how we would measure its success in the company and how it would really enable other teams to do really great work. And so that was about a six-month process, and it was a strange transition for me. There was a huge gap in the growth team in terms of design leadership, 
and the head of design, Alex, and the head of experience design, Katie Dill, had asked me to take on that role. And it was just such an opposite way of thinking about design, way of operating, and all those kind of things. We had, I had spent so much time thinking about a team that really supported other teams. It was a foundation or almost a design infrastructure type team. So we were really working with and supporting other teams. And that was our goal and that was our success. And it was really about being thoughtful, methodical, and paying attention to every detail. Going into the growth team, the philosophy was opposite. It was about speed. It was about iteration. And it was about learning through execution and design. So the transition was a little bit abrupt, but looking back on it a year and a half later, they're not so different. And really the company from a leadership level all the way down to the individual designer has really made a push towards quality and no team has kind of a different standard for design quality anymore. So I think what was nice about coming from the experienced architecture team over into growth is that my instincts were all around details and thoughtfulness and to kind of slow down a little bit on the iteration and it's taken us a long time and it's also taken us some support from leadership and to allow us to move a little bit slower and to act more like a systems team to think about more long-term solutions how can we solve a growth problem but not just do it as a one-off but think about how we can build a system or solve a problem in a way that we can see benefits for the platform and the users for a long time instead of just get some immediate wins for the quarter. So the design systems team, it was you, product manager, and a developer. Is that correct? Yeah, so we had a lead engineer and then a product manager and myself as the lead designer. But initially we had myself and four other designers, including Airbnb's first ever in-house dedicated animator. So that team has increasingly become a home for specialists, people who specialize in animation, We have right now one designer who's kind of got a broad range of skills, but right he's been really deep in developing a custom typeface. We're working with a type foundry and he's helping kind of art direct and lead that process. And so it's a natural place for specialists to come in and do things where they could apply that specialty across the whole organization. We had a woman who joined the team as a specialist in illustration, and she's developed a kind of a design language or a set of standards and guidelines for how we use illustration in different moments and different aspects of the product. So that team is really a specialist team. So when we initially conceived it, it kind of naturally attracted those people, people who wanted to spend a lot of time thinking not about, uh, you know, the five screens of one user flow, but instead the button that appears on every screen in the app and over and over again and how that is consistent or how it changes and adapts and what that means. And so it it kind of naturally attracted a team of specialists. This sounds amazing. And it sounds like the wet dream of a lot of designers out there today. So first, I got to say, it takes a lot of courage from the leadership of the company to basically allow such a team to happen because it's like a lot of manpower, meaning a lot of money spent on something that it's very hard to prove the ROI. How do you explain that? How do you think the leadership, you know, was thinking about this and did they ask you guys to prove ROI? I think there's a great story and it's, it's kind of one of these founding stories that's part of the mythos of Airbnb. But these stories inform how we make decisions and how we decide to validate and value the things that we invest our time and attention in. That story is told over and over again. Everyone who works at Airbnb has heard it a thousand times. But when the founders were going through Y Combinator, they started to build their inventory in New York. That was their fastest growing market early on. And as they were building the inventory, they realized that the photo quality of the homes was really poor. 
And because Airbnb was very new and that trust, the question of, is this safe? Can I trust these hosts? Am I really going to go stay in this person's home? Because that question was still on a lot of people's minds, they realized bad photos is going to hurt that ability for people to, to trust this platform and trust the hosts. And so the founders rented camera gear, they flew to New York, and they spent a few weeks going to every single listing on the site and doing professional level photography for every single listing. That has now become a scaled part of our business. We have a service where photographers all over the world can accept photography jobs and they'll go out and shoot homes that are new on the platform. But for them, that initial investment in quality, they feel like was a really strong competitive advantage. They were never able, especially at the time, they were never able to quantify that or to put any ROI value and associate it with that investment. There's still that challenge to avoid the temptation for near-term wins and hacks and workarounds and maybe compromises in quality. There's always that temptation. I think it's just been a relentless push from Brian, the CEO, downward to always prioritize quality. And sometimes we do find ourselves slipping there. And so it's just a matter of kind of paying attention to it. There have been more recent efforts to try to quantify this. And some of those efforts are really interesting and compelling. And we can talk about how on the growth team, we have a concept that we call readiness. And we actually came up with a pretty quantifiable way of measuring this idea of readiness. And we can tell if a user, based on their answer to a few questions, if they actually feel ready. And ready means that they're willing to try Airbnb as a platform. That's a significant kind of psychological step that a lot of users need to take in their experience with and journey to becoming a comfortable Airbnb user. And so we have these concepts in the company where we could start to tie real data, real responses, real user behaviors to those things that affect trust, not in a way that we can say this color change made people trust us more or the quality of the design on this page contributed to that exactly, but all these things add up and we start to see how they pay off. So that's a really cool concept. Can we dive into that a little bit further, that readiness? And, and maybe you can give some tips if someone wants to implement something like this on you know, a different company site or with their own company, how they would start beginning to quantify if a user is ready to either make a purchase or whatever that kind of magic moment is. Readiness, speaking specifically about readiness, that was an effort to say, how can we attach some kind of user behavior at scale, You know, look at data, look at what users are doing, and then correlate it to a specific measure or metric. And it was really the work of Richard Deere, who's a data scientist at Airbnb, and Chris Monier, who's a researcher. And they just worked together really closely, and they said, let's look at the data, and then let's ask users some questions, and let's see if there's any correlation. And they did, I think they tested 25 different questions. Near the end, it got down to very specific wording. An interesting one was the question they asked specifically is, are you willing to try Airbnb for your next trip? In China, the way that was translated, people interpreted as asking them if they were going to. Literally, are you going to try Airbnb for your next trip? We had to change the question and translate it correctly so the nuance came across as like, theoretically, would you be willing to try Airbnb? And that question, when they got enough responses, I think it was somewhere in the couple thousands of responses, they were able to map the responses to booking data and see a strong correlation with people at a certain threshold answering that question to say, yes, I'm, I'm on, on a scale of five, I'm a four out of five. If people answered a four or five to that question, they were going to book on Airbnb. And so being able to correlate qualitative information with quantitative user behavior data is really, really powerful. 
And that process took a long time. It took a lot of iteration, strong partnership between a data scientist and a user researcher. And in the end, that metric is still not concrete enough for us to make all of our business decisions off of. So it still takes a certain amount of faith from the team to say, we believe that readiness is a concept that is worth measuring and that's worth building products to address. I think it's super interesting. And I think everybody right now listening can try to think and probably the wheels are already in motion. Like people are thinking, what's my level of readiness in my product? I think that for once, it's something that can be applied to a lot of businesses. Even in Hacking UI, what's our level of readiness? I mean, for someone to, I don't know, convert to be a subscriber on a newsletter or for in any business uh, back in similar web, what's the level of readiness for someone to actually start using Pro or any product can find that level of readiness. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, I think it's, again, like the connection for level of readiness and user experience questions. That's the interesting part. And that's something that I guess a lot of designers are looking now also to think, okay, if people come to my product, they would say their level of readiness is maybe, you know, the website loaded fast, for instance. Um, uh, So it has a lot to do with performance, which is front-end. It has a lot to do with content, which is basically UX writing. How do you suggest someone that doesn't have that level of readiness right now in their day job, how do they start getting the wheel rolling to prove something like that with their boss, VP product? My immediate thought is user research. Like, that's the most powerful way One of the things that I've seen user researchers do at Airbnb is tell a really compelling story. And a lot of their work is grounded in process and is grounded in really credible user research best practices. But at the end of the day, if they could distill a body of work into a 30-second video or a quote and a photo from a user, that really brings the emotional aspects of how our users are feeling and get the people involved to feel that way, that's the most powerful thing I've seen. A recent example of this in the growth team has been we've been thinking a little bit more deliberately and specifically about who our users are. And within the growth team, it's not the loyal Airbnb users. Our users are the detractors and the skeptics, you know, the quote unquote haters sometimes. Sometimes people who've had negative experiences in the past and have written us off and don't want to try us again. So we have a tough crowd that we're playing to and we need to build sympathy within the company for that problem. And a lot of the people in the company, they've been such longtime users of Airbnb and everyone they know uses it. And that old story about telling your mom about Airbnb and she thinks it's super weird and crazy, that's not our reality anymore. But there's still a world of people who feel that way, who feel the same way we all felt six years ago when someone explained Airbnb to us and we thought that whole idea is insane. And so we have to tell that story and we have to get that emotional response out of leadership or out of the partners and the other teams we're working with to say, oh, we're not past this hurdle yet. With certain users, we are. And they don't need to be told this stuff. But with some users, we need to talk about trust. We need to talk about safety. We need to talk about cleanliness. We need to tell them that our hosts are held to standards of hospitality. And so there's all of these things that we need to do. But it's important that you build sympathy for the emotional state of all of your users to leadership. They need to understand and put themselves in, in the shoes of your users, new users, past users, loyal users, and they need to understand the problem you're trying to solve, the mindset of that user. They need to feel that. And user researchers are the best people to do that. All right, everyone. So we want to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors. The first sponsor is Envision. Envision is an amazing product design platform that you probably already know. But I want to talk to you today about designbetter.co. The education team over at Envision created a magnificent source of quality learning material for product designers. It's over at designbetter.co. And 
Over there, you will find interviews with dozens of leading designers from companies like Google, Airbnb, Netflix, Facebook, Slack, and more. And you'll be able to basically discover the design practices that they use and that will help you transform your organization and create better products. So just don't forget to hit designbetter.co. And also, if you want, you can subscribe to their own podcast. They have a podcast of their own. It's a great, amazing podcast. And also, you can read one of the four free books that they published and put together for you. And you can check out their one-of-a-kind workshops for designers. FreshBooks is the perfect accounting software for freelance designers and developers or creative entrepreneurs with a small business. FreshBooks is built from the ground up to work for people like us, let's say non-accountants. They have some really powerful features like integration with Stripe, expense tracking, and a customer support team that actually picks up the phone and works with you to find the perfect solution. Actually, my favorite part about FreshBooks is the super smart notifications they send, which show you the highest priority task you can do right now in order to improve your business. Again, if you're an experienced accountant and you're looking for the all-powerful, analytical monster of a tool, okay, this is not it. But if you're like us and you're just looking to get some understanding of your business and keep track of things without wasting hours of your time, then this is exactly what you need. If you want to see what it's all about, FreshBooks gives you a 30-day free trial and doesn't even require a credit card to log in. So you were describing the growth team is now trying to reach this kind of new market. And I was thinking when we started the talk that you're working for one of these few companies that most people are really jealous of because I imagine that you and everyone at Airbnb is using Airbnb all the time and really enjoying it. It has a super need for it. So most people in the company probably, like you said, are really familiar with it. So when you're trying to kind of expand and you're on the growth team, it's kind of like an emerging market or it's at different countries that you're reaching out to. And also, how will you kind of gather sympathy from people who are totally removed from this? It's not just trying to get people they're similar to to understand the product. They're people in probably places in the world they've never even been to before. Yeah, there's a whole range of of users that we're speaking to. Everything from very distinct problems centered around very distinct emerging markets. And so in those cases, we have a specific team working on that. Or they're kind of split between Beijing and San Francisco. The design lead, who's kind of my counterpart for that team, she just moved to Beijing last week. So we're really, really focused. We're really invested in understanding and getting the product right for the Chinese market. But then there's other cases that are more subtle and where we're dealing with cross-cultural issues at scale, things like translation. Are people able to use the product comfortably in their first or second language? You know, we have a bunch of interesting data that certain demographics or certain regions or certain languages like to actually use Airbnb in English, even though it's their second language. Some people want to use in their primary language, but don't know how to find the translation tools or they use the Google trans- automated translation tools, which don't work as good as we'd hope they would. So there's all those kind of problems we're trying to solve But the growth team works with everything from those users who have maybe cultural friction in using the product, language friction in using the product. Some people just have tried it once and didn't really see much value in it or didn't get much more out of it than a hotel. Or they're, very, they're much more comfortable. One of the things that we, we deal with a lot is that Airbnb is not apples to apples when you're talking about hotels, comparing hotels to Airbnb. You trade some things off. You don't have a front desk to call typically. You don't have you know, turn down service with a mint on your pillow. But in return, you get a lot. Typically, you know, you get a lot of extra value, you get a lot of space. I have kids, so when we travel, to have a second or even a third room, or sometimes we'll stay in homes that we know have kids. So there's toys there when we arrive. 
or there's a backyard and there's all these things that are just like infinitely more valuable to us as a traveling family than having room service or a mini bar. So you trade those things off. But for some reason, some people in their first Airbnb experience, if they don't grasp that value, if for some reason that value wasn't as strong or as present in that first experience, then maybe they just like don't value it as much or don't see much of a difference. It's just another alternative. So the place we're always trying to get users is first to understand that it's safe, it's clean, and it's much higher value than your typical hotel, frankly, unless there's very specific services that you're looking for. It's safe, it's clean, it's high value. Once they're there, then we can get them to the next thing is that Airbnb is actually a way to connect to communities, to individuals coming here to Tel Aviv. I've loved going around and seeing things. We went to the Jaffa port. It's cool. It's interesting. There's a lot of people there, but we're just alone. We're just we're foreigners in a strange place. The way I've heard this described is really great. When you travel, a lot of times you don't know the place and the place doesn't know you. No one sees your face and recognizes you. But my first 10 hours in Tel Aviv were time with the Facebook team and I'd been communicating them and it felt like arriving and then going immediately to meet some friends and it felt like home. So that's that second level. Once someone can get over the hurdles and the skepticism and the fears and the doubts, then we get them to say like, oh, it's it's actually more about the people. Yeah, you get great value. You get all those extra things taken care of that you need. You get a little extra space, but you also get to connect to somebody. You get to connect to a community. You don't have to stay in a hotel next to the airport where all the other hotels are. And the only thing to eat is at the hotel restaurant. Like you can go and be in a neighborhood and in a community. So I want to take this conversation to a whole different part. All right. Let's get technical. All right. So you worked in the design systems and you had to form this broad style guide for the company. So what technology did you use? How did you actually get that about? Because in our previous company, Devi was in the development team. I was in the design team, basically in the product team. Mm-hmm. And uh, although we worked together in agile teams, then, you know, it's still different. Like David has his development environment and I have my sketch files. <laughs> and we, need to, we needed to somehow sync. But usually there was you know, different agendas for the like VP of R&D within the VP product. They're on the same agenda, but, you know, totally different kind of like way of grasping things. How did you get all of this together into something that designers can design and then the developers can take it away and keep all the elements in sync across the company? So at this point, I can probably say more about how deficient we were in tying the tech to the design language initially. By the time I transitioned off the team is when the tech really started to become sophisticated and the design and the tech side started to really connect in a much more kind of holistic way. So when we started the team, we very much led with design. And frankly, it was a painful experience for a lot of our engineers because, as I mentioned before, we decided to fork our code base for the native apps and to rebuild the iPad app. For anyone who doesn't know what fork is and stuff like that, because we have some beginner designers as well. Oh, yeah. So the idea is you typically want to have the same exact app, the same code base function on both on the iPad or on tablets and phones. And then it's just built to kind of be responsive and adjust to the device size. And sometimes you can still have unique elements or things that work on one device and the other. But forking it is to actually create an entire new code base. Like you actually rebuild the app from scratch, essentially. And what that ends up doing is in the future, you have two separate apps. And let's say one of the teams decides to add a feature to the product. Well, now if you build that on the phone app, it's not going to automatically show up on the tablet app. You have to build it twice. It just creates a lot of work. And frankly, it's what engineers would refer to as technical debt. It's a really kind of clunky, unsophisticated way to build a product and a platform. 
but we did that deliberately so that we can focus on getting the iPad right and breaking some of the conventions and the rules of the native iPhone app at the time. So the dream of it being both a design system and a technical system was there, but it wasn't really until we had done explorations of a new iPhone app, of a new tablet app, that we decided to say, like, we need to turn this into as much of a technical foundation as a design foundation. And by that time, we had Adam McKayla, who had actually worked on Facebook's interface guidelines previously. And we had an engineer, Michael Bouchand, who was one of our lead iOS engineers. And then Scott Raymond was working as the lead of the whole engineering team of Experience Architecture. So we had a strong leadership team come and really build up the technical side. And that's only gotten more sophisticated over time to the extent that I'll give a shout out to John Gold, who's a design technologist, I think is what we're calling him. Sorry, John, if I got that wrong. But he's someone with a design background, but who's also an engineer. And he's now built tools to integrate Sketch and React, which React is a kind of a JavaScript language that now I think 80% of Airbnb's product is built using React and we're increasingly using React Native on, on native platforms. So the team has become increasingly more technically sophisticated since I've left and it's watching from a distance. It's amazing. And I wish I was working more closely with them, but I think the team now has three or four dedicated engineers that report into the design organization. They have design backgrounds. They do design and engineering, and they build tools and systems, and they really bring a lot to a design language system that needs to be both technical and design. I just wanted to ask one question. I didn't ask you, but are you also a coder, or are you like only a designer? Definitely not an engineer, maybe amateurish coder. I did enough, and I learned enough back in the day to feel comfortable kind of talking about it and talking with engineers through things like limitations and capabilities of platforms and brainstorming. A lot of the times I find where that becomes most useful is brainstorming workarounds and hacky solutions for things like how do we prototype or how do we test an idea? And we start to think about like how we want to handle the data and how we want to build the system and how we might think about building it iteratively. Designers' tendency when they think of a design problem is to think of the ideal state first Engineers do the same thing. You know, you give them a problem, you give them an idea of how to solve it, and immediately they're going to think of all the cool services they could build on the back end to make that work. And it's like, oh, this is going to take six months. And so having enough language and enough understanding to say like, oh, how do we actually work through both the design and the engineering problem creatively is useful. But I pretty much can just write a little bit of, you know, CSS and jQuery stuff and mess around, but haven't done it for So one of the things that was most interesting to me is, and one of the biggest challenges we had when we wanted to do a design system at SimilarWeb was where to begin. And so you said you started with what seems like a, actually a golden opportunity, the iPad app, which is fresh new ground and kind of almost a chance to rewrite. Because this is one of the biggest challenges we had that we didn't want to stop everything and rewrite. And it seems like you kind of seized that opportunity to do something sort of like a rewrite of code or start fresh. So I'm interested if you can talk about that a little bit more about how you made that decision also I assume now that everything has worked back into the rest of the Airbnb code base and the other apps on the website, correct? Yes. Yeah, so we made that deliberate decision. That really came from Alex Schleifer, who's the head of design at Airbnb. He's been there for a few years. And he really pushed for us to just do something new and fresh and to kind of break some of the rules to get us out of maybe some of the ruts or, or to break some of the assumptions that we had had about our product and our interface. Even now, every time we do this, It's not always entirely well-received universally. Like It's always willfully accepting technical debt. But the way I like to think about it is being constrained by the past, being constrained by all the decisions that have been made before is experience and design debt. 
And so every decision you make, you're either accepting some kind of technical debt or design debt. If you say, we're going to solve this problem using only existing components, even though those don't solve the problem in the best way possible, you're deciding to trade off design debt for technical debt. That's a technically sustainable and elegant solution, but it may not solve the problem in an ideal way. Now, if you do something custom and new, now you're accepting some technical debt that eventually you're going to have to pay down. And we have a process now built in the system where you can do something new and then you can maybe test it and then generalize it at some point and say, oh, this particular solution should become a part of the design language. It can become a component that any team can use and kind of make its way into that component library. But it's always a hard decision to make. And what I would say is even now, even with the amount of support we have from leadership to build these systems and to invest in them, even now, sometimes we break the system deliberately and people complain and people are worried and they think, oh, this is going to cause us a lot of problems down the road. And it always does. And it's just this give and take where for one period, you get focused on kind of cleaning things up systematizing them, making them really consistent and consolidating all those components. And then everything feels great and it feels really clean. And then you break it again. And then you kind of forget about it a little bit and you break, 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 break. And that kind of snowballs. And then you have this new thing. You're like, okay, we need to slow down and clean up. And it just happens. I think the language that engineers have for talking about this process of technical debt and then refactoring code, design hasn't developed that language yet. Technical debt and refactoring code are daily consideration and a daily part of an engineer's job. They're thinking about this all the time. We don't think about this as deliberately. We don't think about design debt and then kind of refactoring or componentizing our interface. We don't talk about it as sophisticated as engineers do yet. So what were some of the first components that you guys decided to work on? And was that a good choice? Were these components instantly received well by the rest of the team and were they used in other places or would you have done it differently? By tying the initial explorations to a very tangible problem, which was the tablet interface, which kind of is somewhere between desktop with how much space you have, but is also a touch interface. By tying it to that, it got us really focused on really tangible user problems. So I think we made the right choices only because we were able to build and prototype and put it in front of users and see what was working and not working. And what really mattered was those core navigation components Things like, you know, how do we treat primary action buttons? You know, this was not too long after Google Material Design had introduced the fab, which was the floating action button. And we started to explore some of these concepts and say, how can we generalize some of these actions? So no matter what view a user navigates to, they kind of always know how to get back. Some gestural things that we added because our app mostly relied on explicit navigation, a lot of taps instead of like gestural things like swipe down to dismiss or things like that. So we introduced some very simple kind of gestural navigation elements, some very basic primary components. How do I get back or how do I go to the next thing or how do I perform the primary action on this page? We really got focused on those things. So I feel like we made the right choice, but not because we had some kind of philosophical idea about what the right things to work on, but because we were able to tie the exercise to a concrete problem. All right. And when you did work on that thing, like, you know, tying it into a problem, then you worked on it in the team where you had also UX researchers on board and I guess product designers that had a say. How did they to collaborate? How did product designers collaborate? Yeah, so that's an interesting question because we had our first, the experience architecture team was initially conceived primarily with engineers, designers, and a product manager. Most other product teams also had data science as a discipline within the team and user research. And those are kind of five key disciplines you see in every team. And then certain teams like the growth team has marketing as a discipline. Some other teams have some unique disciplines in them. Some have like infrastructure engineers or search algorithm engineers, things like that. 
our team was kind of more narrow and focused in its discipline. So when we did get user research, it was a bit of a process to learn how to do user research related to design systems. So a lot of the initial research we did was probably the most basic type of research you do, which is usability research, which is more, I guess there's kind of two types of usability research, which is like take a new idea, prototype it and show it to users and see how it's working. As the research discipline within experience architecture has gotten more sophisticated, they're still doing a lot of usability research, but it's more forward thinking. It's more take our entire product today, think of it as the states it's in, and rather testing to validate solutions, talk to users about the existing product to find problems. And so they've become much more forward thinking and forward reaching in their scope. They go out and they talk to users. They'll do work where they'll share reports across the team and they'll There's these revelatory things. It's like, generally, our users have a hard time doing X. It's like, oh, yeah, this that makes sense. Like, that is a whole problem to focus on and to solve. Or there was some work done on performance or accessibility. You know, all of these things where user research within XARC was having time to zoom out and ask broader questions and to collect a bunch of insights and data on these broad themes and problems within our product. And those then led to entire tracks of work. What deliverables the user research side bring into the product design? So they're typically doing reports and kind of going back to something I said earlier. There's probably three aspects to it. One is some amount of qualitative data. We talked to you, these many users and we heard these types of responses. You know, 31% of users said X and 40% said this, things like that. And then something more around storytelling where it's interviews and quotes and maybe some videos that they're doing, but really painting kind of the... the emotional picture of the user experience. And then sometimes they are doing just like more kind of in the weeds usability testing where it's like, you know, we built a prototype, they sat with users and they just asked them to walk through it and observe them and get responses. What's working, what's not working kind of stuff. All right. So the product designers, were they in those user research sessions and were they a part of that session? And also who's doing the wireframes and sketching? Uh, yeah. So the product designers and researchers... sometimes work really closely and really well together. It depends on the type of work. If it's usability research around a specific idea or an execution of an idea, then the designers are building prototypes, building click-through prototypes, sometimes paper prototypes, whatever we think will get the best response. Best not meaning positive response, but really informative, useful response. So in those cases, the designers are working really closely with the researchers. And in some cases, we're iterating between sessions, which I really enjoy. I like when you can you know, talk to three users in the morning and then take a lunch break and realize it'd be interesting to hear more about a specific element or a specific idea. And so you can kind of go back and change the design to solicit the response that you're, you're looking for. There is work, which I find some of the most interesting work from the user research perspective. I like to engage with even more than usability research. And that work a lot of times happens without design. And this is when like, the user research team is looking at really broad themes or problems. And again, it's this kind of zoom out idea. And they're really ahead of every other discipline. And they're going out into the world and they're saying, like, we want to understand what it means to be loyal to Airbnb. This was a whole body of work that was researched for the last several months. And it was super interesting work. And they're not showing prototypes and they're not talking about designs. They're just talking to users about how they feel. How do they feel about the brand? How do they feel about their experience? And trying to understand what they mean when they say, I am loyal or I'm not loyal to this brand. That tends to be like the most interesting and the most compelling work. And 
it's incredible how dramatic the things that we learn are in those sessions and how insightful they are. And those things tend to inform really, really broad strategic decisions. Because a lot of times we think one thing about our product or our community or our users, and we can be totally off. And so that stuff is invaluable to go out to users and be like, oh, we've, we talked to 100 people around the world and we found out that business travel is just a terrible way to travel. <laughs> you know, that was one thing that we worked on. And, and we found out that we really have an advantage in the business travel market because you're not going to some hotel, again, by the airport, away from the city, alone, nobody you know, but you arrive and someone knows your name and they're waiting for you. And business travelers like that and it feels really good. All right, so we have about 10 minutes left. And for those 10 minutes, what we would really love to talk to you about is basically once you have something you would like to pitch that you identify, you think you identified a problem in the product, and a lot of startups want to move fast, even small and even big startups want to move fast. How do you as a designer inside the design team pitch some idea of a problem to your team and the people around you and above you? Yeah, so this is something that I find myself kind of Everyone is susceptible to this assumption that because we all believe, we all work on the same thing, and hopefully everyone on the company believes in what we're doing, and we want the same thing, we want the same outcome. But sometimes you have to remind yourself that not everyone has the same idea of the right way to get there. There's short-term things you can do that will kind of step you closer towards it. There's longer-term investments that you can make. And so I think as designers, sometimes we have a different idea, and sometimes there's things that we might have kind of a natural ability to see that other people have a hard time seeing. And these are these things like system solution or far thinking solutions or saying like, oh, you know, we want to do X, Y, and Z. We have three things that we want to do. But what you can see from the design perspective is that they're all kind of solving a system of similar user problems and we should actually just solve it one way. And so I find myself coming across this a lot where there's maybe an opportunity that as a designer, I can see And it relates to maybe the user experience. And that's really the unique perspective that a lot of designers bring is there's an opportunity that I can see. And how do I build an understanding or sympathy with everybody else into that opportunity? This happens at Airbnb a lot. And I think it comes down to a few things to make this stuff happen. Big thing is a lot of times this relates to a problem within the organization, a problem with the company, a problem with the product. You have to pitch it as not a problem, but an opportunity. Everyone complained about how broken product is or how bad things are without a design system, et cetera, et cetera. But you really have to figure out how to turn that into an opportunity. Because as a business, there's other opportunities that are always going to outweigh the problems that need to be fixed. So for the example with the design system is a design system is an opportunity to allow teams to work more efficiently and produce higher quality work more consistently over a longer period of time. And so if you can paint the picture of an opportunity for that system for consistency, quality, and efficiency in the design and development process, then what you're really asking for is for a slower process and a longer-term investment that might take a few months, but then a long-term will speed everything up and make everything work faster. So for doing something like building a design system, the real question is to ask yourself, what's the opportunity? What does it enable? And do, does the company actually value those things that it enables? Does it value speed of iteration? Does it value consistency? Does it value quality? And quality is a hard thing to define, but like just ask your users what they think of your product. Ask them what they think of your product next to your competitor's product. Ask them which product they view as being higher quality. I can list a whole list of competitors to Airbnb, and a lot of people will say a lot of things about them, but 
I don't think a lot of people would say that our competitors feel like they're a higher quality brand or product than we are because we prioritize that and it comes across in the experience. It comes across in the visual language. So I think about a lot of this stuff having built or kind of helped build the initial design systems team, the experience architecture team at Airbnb, and then go on to help build the design discipline within the growth team. A lot of times when we are choosing the things that we work on and when we're choosing what to prioritize, it's a lot of like telling a story and getting to believe that what you're doing and what you're pitching is an opportunity and not just a problem. At what stage of a company or what size company and maturity level of the product would you say that investing in a design system is the right move or is it at every stage? I think there's probably room for it at almost every stage. As soon as you have two people that are responsible for executing the design, I think it starts with brand. I think brand guidelines are the first area because those you don't want to violate because those are really visible when the brand and the language, things like the voice and tone and the copywriting are inconsistent. So I'd start with probably brand guidelines for smaller companies. At some point, you probably want user experience guidelines and components. So I think the biggest leap is going from a set of guidelines to a design language system, which has a technical foundation to it. It's not just guidelines or it's not just templates that designers use, but it's actually a set of engineered components that get reused over and over again. That's probably the biggest investment that you have to make. And I don't know when that makes sense, but it probably doesn't make sense until you have a pretty significantly sized team and it can benefit the speed of product development, both on the design and engineering side. Basically, design systems in terms of proving its return on investment is reducing the cost of development time in any company. So... Yeah, once you can pitch that to someone. And I think the interesting thing that you're talking about, Ken, is that you talked about level of readiness for your product in Airbnb. But I think also, without saying it, you say, if you want to pitch it, you got to find the level of readiness in your team to accept that concept. The whole readiness thing is a super interesting concept because it's very much grounded in like some psychology about a few trade-offs people are making in terms of perceived risk and perceived value. It's the same thing when you're working with a team of individuals who want to prioritize other things. It's actually, that's a really interesting thing I hadn't thought of, but in a company, a lot of our decisions are balancing or trading off value and risk. And a lot of times, long-term solutions are viewed as both being inherently risky and also the value is not going to be realized in the short term. It's only going to be realized in the long term. So it's a tough pitch to say this is more risky and less valuable if you're thinking about hitting your quarterly goals. This is not going to help you hit your goals. So yeah, it's a tough pitch. How do you get people ready and say like, oh, the value is enough or the risk is low enough that we're going to make this actually work and benefit us in the long term? Well, it sounds like you guys have done a great job with it. And I think we are just about out of time here. But this was super interesting. And I think a lot of our listeners will really have actionable insights that they can take away from it and start using in their own companies. So thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much, man. And to all the beginner designers listening to this, I mean, Keenan shows some tremendous level of experience and also the thinking about engineering, even talking about copy. And so don't get overwhelmed. (laughs) Um, But I think it's something that you can really learn from because it's something that if you want to be a great designer, you have to really think about all those things, a design system, but basically this is the whole system entirely, technical depth, design depth. All right. So thank you very much, Keenan. That was amazing, man. Uh, great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, guys. All right, everyone. And that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider sharing it with a colleague or a friend that you think would benefit from listening to it. And if we may ask one more thing. 
please rate us on iTunes. This will help the podcast reach more audience and make us so happy. You only have to do this once, not every episode, and it has tremendous impact. Thanks a lot, hackers, and we'll see you on the next episode. Woo-hoo! What's up? So if you enjoyed this episode, I'm very happy and you're welcome to listen to the rest of the episodes of the Hacking UI podcast. I just want to let you know that this is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are no longer creating new episodes for this specific podcast. David and I are working on different businesses now. So I just wanted to let you know that, first of all, if you want to catch David, you can check out Thought Leaders. And that's what he's working on, thoughtleaders.io. And if you want to check out what I'm working on, I have a new podcast. It's called Creativepreneur, the Creativepreneur Show with Sagi Schreiber. And you would be able to find that on iTunes and any podcast app. And I would invite you to come and listen. And that's where I interview people that have built a lifestyle business out of their skills and passions. It's amazing. I interview so many different people that have amazing stories and will help you with your business, will help you with your skills, taking your skills to the next level and achieving higher goals. So if you're interested in that, I'm there, The Creativepreneur Show, and you can check it out also on YouTube. And you can also just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. I hope to see you around.